Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the MedTech Impact Podcast, where you get to hear from leaders and innovators who are shaping the future of medical technology. I'm Kyle Cruz. And I'm Richard Mikkeljohn. And we're your hosts of the show. So today we have Debbie Cantor, CEO and founder of Hero Medical Technologies. Welcome to the show, Debbie. Thank you so much, Richard and Kyle. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you back. So a bit of background, you were part of cohort four of Impact at the end of last year. And so we're super excited to see where you are today and sort of, yeah, see where you are going forward, of course. Um, but as always, to kick things off, we like to set the scene uh, and start with the problem. What is the big problem that Hero Medical Technologies is looking to solve? We are focused on traumatic brain injury or TBI. And our goal is really to expedite the uh, diagnosis and treatment of head injury. And really the biggest problem is that 95% uh, of patients are diagnosed with a mild form of it that still leads to lifelong complications. And so using data science, we discovered a way to uh, detect secondary changes that, that cause some of the life altering events. And so when you're talking about these life altering events, like what are some of those? Can you give a few examples? Yeah, so starting from the point of injury, you know, according to the CDC, uh, traumatic brain injury can occur from a bump, jolt, hit to the head. They come in all shapes and sizes. Everybody's head injury is different. And uh, it's not always the bleeding head injury that's the most severe. And so uh, by analyzing massive data sets of head injury patients from the ambulance, we were able to see what the most critical biomarkers are uh, to predict the patients who will fare worse, patients who will die before reaching the hospital, patients who will require hospitalization, uh, patients whose oxygen will drop too low. And we even went on to predict uh, which patients will suffer from the most pain because 50% of head injury patients uh, end up suffering chronic pain. And I can imagine this is a huge market. I mean, people hit their heads all the time. Yes. So according to research, you know, uh, infants and toddlers, zero to four, and then older adults over age 65 are the ones most likely to suffer. Um, one in four older adults will fall each year. Uh, but you, th you then have a lot of people from motor vehicle accidents. And what we've identified is that there are a lot of people who should be either worked up the medical lingo for being tested for a head injury uh, or just identified that they could be at risk of a head injury. And so you lose a lot of potential people who did hit their head. And therefore, uh, we believe that there's an underestimation of the true number of people with head injuries. So Kyle, it seems like there's a huge unmet need. Well, of course. I mean, I can tell you right now is I probably hit my head one too many times uh, growing up with all the sports that I played. And, uh, you know, I'm just someone that likes to always put have, you know, put myself in uh, some <laughs> risky situations, if you will. Um, so I can imagine that this type of technology and being able to kind of like, you know, address uh, and identify uh, traumatic brain injury is so critically important. I'm just kind of curious, um, can you tell us more, too, about just the current standard of care so far for addressing uh, TBI? Yeah, so uh, standard of care 
first off, if there's a bleeding head wound, then you would first, uh, you know, dress or bandage the, the bleeding wound. So that, that's step one. Not every head injury bleeds. And so step two would be identify how, um, what their level of consciousness is. So the Glasgow Coma Score or scale, GCS, is what's typically used to diagnose a patient before they get to the hospital or even as they proceed through the hospital. So you'd identify, are they able to speak? Are they moving their arms and legs? Are they able to open their eyes or not? But then once they're at the hospital, they'll go through the whole process of being seen by a nurse, being seen by a doctor and deciding, you know, during the evaluation process, should they have a CAT scan or not? And that's really the gold standard of how it's identified if somebody has a brain injury or not. You know, is there an internal bleed inside the brain? Is there swelling? Um, but the problem is that's a spot check. And so even checking the Glasgow Coma score, even checking vital signs, and then the CAT scan is not capturing some of the dynamic changes. Um, and so even though it's known that blood pressure, a drop in blood pressure can be very meaningful, um, unlike heart patients who have, you know, uh, uh, and the EKG checked and, and have wires attached to them right away. For possible head injuries, they're not attached to all the monitoring equipment right away. And so a lot of that data is missed. Well, that's a good point. And so I guess that leads us to our next question. I guess, how are you seeking to address this problem, you know, and what is Hero Medical's kind of unique solution to improve uh, the current approach? Yeah, so just to give a bit of a background, I'm a nurse practitioner, so I'm looking at this uh, very much through the, the eyes of a clinician. Uh, and, and so the unmet need, I, you know, initially was for a cap-shaped bandage. Um, and, and so I realized you need to first stop the bleeding if you're going to be able to capture the data. And so what began as, as you know, a a company to develop wound care products has evolved into the whole data science because, uh, because of the fact that the more severely injured patients are not always the bleeding ones. So we, we came up with a system solution that's basically three parts, customizable and works together. Put on a cap-shaped bandage so it takes a fraction of the time, uh, then rolled regular gauze, and then integrate vital sign monitoring with uh, red, yellow, green light indicators of how severe the patient is based on vital signs. And then uh, incorporate it with a software mobile app that's basically making the decisions using back, well, not making the decisions, uh, aiding the clinicians with decision support based on back end data of other ones. So bandage, triage, and monitor the patient so that you can uh, better identify which patients require the most intensive care. And it sounds like you're doing it in a way that obviously uh, allows faster time to, to treatment, to addressing potential TBI by combining, you know, the way you described the, the way it's done today with the bandage and then obviously then there being later steps in the process, you're doing it all in one. You've got the bandage, you've got the, the sensors or, or electrodes, right. That are going on the head um, that are doing the diagnostic side. Right. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. So what we're looking to diagnose is not the actual head injury. We're looking to diagnose the secondary complications of head injury that are markers for a more severe head injury. 
We're not replacing CAT scan. Uh, you know, there's research out that shows that uh, on average, head injury patients spend over six and a half hours at the emergency room waiting to have all the testing, decision-making. During that time, they might have their blood pressure and vital signs checked only, you know, three to five times. And so a lot of that meaningful data is lost. Mm -hmm. So we're identifying those meaningful changes in vital signs that can help uh, prognosticate, meaning understand what the future looks like for that patient and whether they should be admitted to the hospital, but maybe would otherwise be sent home because it's not realized that their injury is as severe as it is. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And um, I guess, what are you seeing so far, you know, from your product being used currently in clinicals or testing? What do those results look like? Yeah, so because we are working on multiple stages, right, we have the bandage to develop the sensor and the software, uh, we're running parallel development. Uh, so our bandage is about to be manufactured in the first small batch of um, 50 prototypes. We've already tested prototypes. The week that COVID shut everything down, we were able to uh, eke in a simulation study at the Mayo Clinic, and we were able to prove that our bandage was faster than standard gauze every single time for nurses and, uh, and surgeons who did this every day wrapping their patients. So we had mock patients tested it. And, and the importance of that was that, um, you know, patients can bleed to death in three to five minutes. So the fact that we could shave off minutes of time with our bandage uh, was a big value proposition. proposition. Um, for the sensor itself, we're also in early development. Uh, to our knowledge, it's the first wearable sensor that can actually offer you the insights on the sensor. So you're not just reliant on the software, but this is still early where we're planning for an ER study to test that out. And then the back end data science uh, the most complex, but very, very meaningful. We looked at 152,000 head injury patients from the ambulance, and we were able to test with 98.2% accuracy predicting low blood pressure. And that's very, very meaningful because that could double your risk of dying from head injury. This is brilliant. You know, bringing true uh, data intelligence to TBIs, it's such a you know vast improvement on the current standard of care. But you, you also mentioned there's a lot of ways you can take this. So I'm wondering how have you decided where to focus in terms of those patients to get started? You know, what's that beachhead look like? Yeah, so our beachhead through a lot of research uh, we realize now it needs to be the emergency room. Eventually, we want it to trickle to the ambulance as well, but there are uh, commercialization um, you know, needs that we need to consider as a company is that there, there aren't reimbursement codes right now for an ambulance. Uh, you have 40,000 different fire departments purchasing from different organizations, and so to have it in the emergency room first where you can model the import importance of it, but translate the need from data from the ambulance uh, can be very, very meaningful. Uh, we're trying to really create a connected platform. In fact, we, we just released an app that can be used for patients after they go home from the ambulance, uh, from the emergency room to monitor their pain after a head injury. 
And is reimbursement established already? Like, what does that pathway look like going forward? Is there an existing code you can tap into? Yes. So we had hired a consulting firm at one point to help us review codes, and we identified a number of codes for use in the emergency room. One of the problems is that you have patients that are sort of in no man's land where it's undecided, should they stay at the emergency room, be admitted to the hospital, go home, or stay in observation. So we've identified some observation monitoring codes uh, for use in the hospital, and then we're also able to tap into some of the um, reimbursement codes for uh, remote patient monitoring and um, remote therapeutic monitoring as well. And that would be for patients once they're, once they're sent home. But <laughs> I'll qualify that with there, there's a lot to learn still. Uh, most of the remote uh, monitoring devices require 30 days worth of monitoring. And one of the biggest gaps for this type of problem is that who owns the patient during that mm. transfer, right? From ambulance to hospital, from hospital to home. If you send a patient home with a, a monitoring device, is it the hospital's responsibility or the primary care responsibility? And especially for traumatic brain injury, when you have patients, I think 40% of patients with a head injury who get readmitted to the hospital seek care at a different hospital. And so it's, it makes it even more complicated to help bridge that gap. You know, that's kind of interesting, uh, Debbie. And, 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 you know, I know that Richard and I, we continue to see a lot of technologies that allow this kind of at-home care, right? So I think what you're describing is interesting and something that I didn't even know. Um, and just speaking of challenges in general, that what would, I guess, what would be the difference, though, between another device that's doing some sort of at-home kind of data collecting and, um, you know, patient monitoring where that information is going to the hospital, right, in real time so that, you know, doctors and physicians and what have you can be able to monitor that and look at it and say, oh, hey, you need to get in here, right, and we need to take care of you. Like, who? I guess, whose responsibility is that? Is it at all relatable, I guess, to the situation that you're in? Um, that, that's a good question. Uh, you know, who's responsible? I think it, it takes you to the point that most information is siloed between hospital and even ambulance hospital and home. So a lot of these, you know, I know Mayo Clinic runs a, uh, you know, a program for, for um, you know, whether it's emergency room at home or, or post care at home. Who runs that data? How is it collected? And how is it compared back to what they had at the hospital? Um, the problem is it's not fully integrated. And, and we think that it's very, very important to take that hospital data from that patient and continue to monitor it in the same way it was gathered in the hospital so that it can be better translated. Meaning if it's the same wearable or the same app that was used patient facing that they can track themselves even while they're in the hospital, then you're, you're better able to understand what are the differences? How are they improving? How are they at risk of getting worse? So a lot of our machine learning, and that, that's really that the answer is in the predictive analytics and, and predicting this patient will likely have a drop in blood pressure. This patient will likely suffer more pain within, you know, 24 hours. And so we can try to help sooner. 
And it seems like, I guess, with all, well, similar to all product development, it's a complex pathway, uh, you know, but in terms of the regulatory pathway, which path are you taking? Yeah, so uh, we received um, a small grant from the Military Technology Enterprise Consortium for the purpose of submitting our breakthrough device designation with the FDA. And breakthrough device designation is, is sort of a fast track method for a class two device, which our um, software and hardware combination requires. So we're following class two pathway. We submit a breakthrough device. Uh, as with the data we provided, it needs to be reshaped and, and, and offer more data in the emergency room. Uh, which, which for sure is understandable because the data we have is considered in silica, meaning it's, it's computer retrospective data that was analyzed. And even though it was analyzed across real patients, we still need to run a study where we can take our algorithms and run them in the intended site. Um, so yes, very complicated. Uh, our bandage is the least complicated of, of the projects. And, and that's a class one 510K exempt product to our understanding now. Uh, and so our, our hope is to manufacture that, uh, have, have hospitals start to um, use that to pave way and, and give us an early revenue source to help with our R&D of the more technical pieces. Cool, and what does the timeline look like? So you mentioned you're just a way to start some studies yeah, so uh, we have a number of collaborations uh, with um, Duke Health System, Mayo Clinic, uh, but really we're submitting a number of non-dilutive uh, grant applications, including to the DOD. So uh, it's very time consuming. We're trying to also raise uh, VC funds. So time-wise, I my goal would be in the next, you know, six months to to have an emergency room study where we can at least run algorithms through retrospective data. I think you nailed a bunch of these milestones that we typically like to cover, uh, Richard. You know, those are some great questions. And Debbie, so it sounds like overall, though, you've got the FDA breakthrough designation. You're raising capital. You're in the process or you're working towards the breakthrough designation. Breakthrough. Right? Yeah, I was going to correct. We do not yeah. have it. And no, you don't yeah. have it, but you're working towards that. Um, uh, you're working towards uh, raising capital. I guess what other you know critical milestones over the next six to eighteen months are you really focusing on uh, achieving? Yeah, so um, we we are submitting our our full non-provisional patent for the machine learning analytics that we're using. I didn't mention it before, but um, we. We have a patent pending on facial analytics along with vital signs to predict severity of a patient's pain. And that's extremely novel. Uh, and I think it will be very useful to help with uh, health equity so that because your pain and my pain is not the same and even using machine learning, I don't necessarily need to compare your micro expressions of pain to the last million people who suffered pain, but rather it can create kind of a, a thumbprint for how your heart rate uh, changes, how your expressions change when you're either suffering or about to suffer pain. So we're submitting that, that's one of our big um, 
uh, milestones is to submit that. Of course, everything costs money. So we're trying to raise funds for that as well. Um, we have uh, two granted patents already, but we have to continue to submit, you know, uh, various, you know, add claims and, and continuation in part. And so building up our patent portfolio, of course, is a, a continued milestone. Um, mm -hmm. And we are basically a virtual company right now working with advisors and consultants. But I, you know, obviously we need to have somebody in-house for the machine learning uh in-house for, for some of the R&D um, and an and, and early sales force for the bandage. You know, and, and at, well, something that's come up recently in the news that I'm seeing a lot of is this focus on cybersecurity with medical devices. Is that that's something that would be, you know, necessary for your technology then? Absolutely. I mean, that's something we've discussed with the, the military. Um, you know, I had an opportunity to present in North Carolina to the Warfighter Brain Health, and the the head of the program brought a general over to me to, you know, to see what we're working on, and I could show him the demo of the software, and I showed him the bandage, and, and he offered me some insights in terms of cybersecurity and, you know, how do you not allow other people you know, potential aggressors to identify who's wearing your device and capture any of the information that could show a weakness. So that's from a military perspective. Cybersecurity is, of course, a massive um, concern, even in terms of uh, medical for HIPAA. You know, we need to maintain HIPAA compliance and especially using facial analytics. That's just an extra layer. And so that's one thing that we're working through uh, with some of our collaborators is making sure that that data, we have a management plan to make sure that it's, you know, stored appropriately, of course, and, and can't get breached. Of course, for the military, you know, we're, we're designing this to have red, yellow, green lights, alerts on the sensor. So of course, you have to have a feature where you can turn off those lights if you don't want to be detected. But, you know, a big value for that patented alert system for us is the fact that you're essentially enabling crowdsourcing of monitoring because it means that a family member could identify, whoa, there's something not right going on with my family member. It's blinking yellow now. It's going to red. Let me call the nurse. Otherwise, you know, maybe that could be even faster than having the nurse notice it on their monitor. And so, you know, same way a platform like Waze works to say, hey, there's a ladder in the middle of the road, heads up, uh, you know, we can have a system of predicting in advance, alerting in advance. Uh, and, and so I think there's a lot of value for that with a more visible platform. And this also talks to the fact that, you know, everyone now has to become in some way a data scientist and or certainly to the degree of understanding how to apply data science to get the best out of a medical device so who else is involved with the company in terms of the team and helping with that aspect yeah so first of all our um, medical director mike blivis is a uh, an emergency room physician uh, he's an aerospace engineer by by training undergraduate and has a passion for for digital health uh, data science, and he's been a um, 
a medical director for a number of wearable companies. Uh, in the 90s, he helped pioneer ultrasound technologies, point of care diagnostics. So we have him as a, a critical piece of our team. And then on top of that, uh, it just so happens my, my neighbor is the CEO of NLP Logics, one of the fastest growing uh, data science companies. They developed algorithms for stroke for the Mayo Clinic. They work on, on fighter jets. Uh, you know, they, they have a strong background in the machine learning. And uh, I, I sent my son to work for them as an intern. He, uh, he's worked for them a number of years. And, and so he, he's my in-house, uh, so to speak, also doing aerospace engineering now. Very cool, very cool. And, and in terms of like developing the team, like who do you look at next? Like if you're thinking about growing, is there a next key hire you have in mind or is it too early to think about that? Uh, it's not too early. Um, I have a, a number of, of uh, people to help me search for those um, high caliber team members. I need really a, a chief operating officer, somebody who can really help on a day-to-day -day basis with strategy. Um, I need, uh, you know, we do need somebody in data science in-house, so we're, we're not relying, uh, you know, on students and, and an outside company um, because that's really become the meat and potatoes of our, our secret sauce. You know, what we always like to ask our guests, uh, you know, with all these experiences and everything that's going on right now, obviously, I mean, you are juggling so many balls right now, and there's so much that you're working on and focused to. So um, obviously, you probably have a lot of experience and insights that you can share with the audience. So I guess what are maybe, you know, uh, one, two, three things, uh, pieces of advice, you know, and insights that you can share um, with the audience, uh, you know, that they might want to know and consider if they were ever going to even consider starting a medical device company and trying to bring a, an innovative technology to market? Yeah, great question. My first uh, piece of advice is to know that the struggle is real. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, it, it's a scary process. Uh, once you have the, I'll say, entrepreneurial bug in you, it's really tough to uh, prevent what they call feature creep. And I, I definitely have done that going from bandage to sensor to software. At the same time, I, I hold by it because I, I know that that's really what's needed um, to fill these gaps. And on one hand, you know, a lot of people, and I'm, we're talking to big strategics, we're talking to people like 3M and Philips and GE Healthcare and the military. So I'm, I'm getting attention from these big folks, but uh, you know, understanding that you really can't do it by yourself. It takes a massive network. I've spent the past couple years helping build up this network. And of course, people like Richard are fantastic. Richard has uh, introduced me to many, many people. The M2D2 program was fantastic. Prior to that, we received a Johnson & Johnson uh, award as well. So uh, just tenacity is the the number one thing and just keep you have to have thick skin and throw your name out there as many times as you can i mean just pitch at any event you can uh you know i've been told in the background by one of his, my advisors during a pitch event debbie that was one big run-on sentence um 
but you got to keep doing it. <laughs> oh, Debbie, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And Kyle, I can attest to Debbie's tenacity. I think, you know, she's got that brilliant entrepreneurial mindset and, you know, brings that to the table in spades. Um, but I'm wondering, like, what motivates you? you? Do you? What's the big vision? Like, what, you know, where do you, would you like to see this technology in five years time? I would love to see it, obviously, in as many emergency rooms as as we can. I'd like to prove that it's able to not only save lives, but improve uh, treatment for patients. Uh, I'd like to see that it changes some policy. Um, you know, it's possible that the same way, that, you know, I think it will lead to drug discovery, really. Right now, there just aren't really treatments for traumatic brain injury. Uh, it might be something as simple as, you know, if somebody thinks they're having a stroke, you're supposed to chew two aspirins. Well, maybe this will help lead to, if you are in a car accident and suspect this has happened, treat the patient with X, Y, Z. So I, I'd like to see some changes made. I've already seen, uh, you know, through uh, the military, they have now decided to redraft um, how traumatic brain injury is diagnosed. And what I see is that what we discovered through data science is really what they're coming up with now. So I feel very, very validated that we're on the right track and I, we are moving forward. Brilliant. And when you're mentioning drug development, I, I guess there's a number of companies that might be potential acquirers of this technology. You know, if you're looking at a potential exit, you know, is there any sort of dream names you think this would be applicable to? Uh, well, given that you're based in, in Boston and I, I just became aware that Boston Scientific owns the name pain.com, the domain name. I thought, well, a big focus of our, our work is, um, you know, identifying patients with traumatic brain injury who will go on to suffer from chronic pain. So mm -hmm. I think companies like Boston Scientific, some of the pharmaceutical companies uh, like Bayer uh, could be potential um, of potential interest to us and hopefully we are to them. Yeah, Kyle, it sounds like that could be the perfect match. Seriously, uh, that's fantastic, Debbie. And I guess, so um, how do they get in touch with you though, if they, if anyone wants to reach out? Uh, best way is email or text. I just found out that my phone is going straight to voicemail. So that at least for the, until I troubleshoot that might not be the best idea. I'm, I'm running a lot of tests on our new app and it's taking a lot of data off my phone. So email, LinkedIn, text message, happy to connect. Brilliant. Well, Debbie, this has been an absolute delight to have you on the show, to share your mission. So thank you so much for everything you're doing and for joining us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, another huge thank you to Debbie Cantor, CEO and founder of Hero Medical Technologies. So thank you again, everyone, for tuning in for another episode of the MedTech Impact Podcast. I'm Kyle Cruz. And I'm Richard Meeklejohn. Until next time, keep innovating. <laughs>